namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputassa buddhang dhammang sankhang namasami so maya cold continues to be in the body so my contemplation is uh, very much around what is what is sickness and what is the suffering around sickness because it's such a minor a minor kind of discomfort of cold that it's actually a very a very good theme for understanding uh, suffering and the end of suffering and when we get these minor things, they are quite useful situations to understand the teaching. When we have extremes, then then we're sort of just on automatic pilot. So I imagine if I if I have cancer and I have to have uh, chemotherapy, the extremes of that would be so profound. I can't even imagine it. But what would click in would be the kind of practices I've done. And they would be my basis, wouldn't they? They'd be my refuge for dealing with, with the extremes. I always find that when, when I'm on a retreat, that whatever, whatever emotional, physical, social situation comes up, that is the practice. And that my constant uh, consideration is what is grasping and what is non-grasping. And if I'm grasping and caught up with something, then it's very prolific in the mind through thought. And then I can see that you know, why why does my mind keep dwelling on that? Why why is there this constant echo in my mind around that issue? What is it about that part of my life that doesn't just end with a situation? Why does it keep reverberating my mind when I go back to my kuti, whatever? And that's always a sign of attachment. So Sickness is it's unpleasant, but it's not suffering until I start thinking in ways of being fed up with it or uh, being tired of it or being afraid of it or worrying about it, which isn't to be dismissive. And that's the... Like Beatrice is asking, like, between being dismissive and, and equanimity, it's being equanimous, but still doing due diligence and trying to take care of the body as best I can on, on a physical level, on a, on a kind of level of compassion. And these two ways of being incarnate, one is where we uh, fulfill the duties of our, our place in society and our place in our family and our place in the monastery. And we live morally and we live by the etiquettes of the monastery and we fulfill our worldly responsibilities. That's one way we live. And, and that's the way where we, we consider ourselves as a part of a narrative. I'm, I'm Verdomo and uh, my parents are refugees from Eastern Europe and uh, this body is uh, almost 69 full years old and uh, my dad had cancer at 74 and died, and my mother died at 93, and I'll be going to Thailand. So there's a whole narrative 
identity there. We all have that. We have a passport. So that's one way that one considers life. And that's the way of, of, of sila, morality, the way of vinaya, of the kind of monastic discipline we have, and the way of, of social responsibility. And then the other way we're asked to consider life is, is much more um, elemental or fundamental or existential, I suppose. And that's the way of the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, where we are encouraged to to look at life not just as a Viridomo storyline or a, a Chunda storyline or whatever, but rather as a stream of consciousness within which there are certain elements, and we try to observe that stream of consciousness through the perceptions of change. So the the, like just the body, uh, like say, the physical um, physical experience of having a cold and having the sinuses feel like a large watermelon's on my head and the kind of discomforts of feeling enervated and, and body feeling flushed with the heat and so on. These are very elemental things and they can be known um, in a very simple way, and that's the way uh, the first foundation of mindfulness is to know the body is the body. So I can I can have symptoms of sickness, and then think about them and think, okay, I'm, I should have some cough expectorant or some way. And that's the way of responsibility and and uh, due diligence. But also I can just look at the very uh, feeling of heat in the body, just as heat or the feeling of heaviness or the feeling of tiredness, and just know it in a very elemental way. And when I know it in that elemental way, um, and, I can, and I can see it change, then, my, then I, I enter into a state of uh, equanimity or peacefulness. Because now I'm, I'm not uh, attached to the body as a personal problem, or a personal whatever, but I see it more as a, as a function in nature. And that distancing or that space around the body is not denying the body's needs, it's not being dismissive, it's just taking another perspective. And we can all do that. The more extreme the pain is, the more difficult it is. So, it's a lesson that we're asked to learn, like in meditation, as I, as I said earlier, just take, take something like you know, some kind of discomfort that you're experiencing in the body and just try to see body as body. You know, just tightness is tightness or you know, before you define it, well, just allow it to be conscious. And if you learn how to do that, that very feeling of discomfort becomes an avenue of peace because you learn about non-grasping or non-attachment. Non-attachment is not, is, isn't to deny that that experience is just not being enmeshed in it, just knowing it as as, as it is. And that's a that's a big lesson about being incarnate in the body. A lesson that we all are constantly learning. So the body as an elemental thing, it's it's a movement in nature. As a concept, the body is a fixed kind of idea. But as, a, as an existential experience right now, you can see that when you just let go of uh, ideas about body, thoughts about body, and just know body is body, then it's a, it's a changing, vibrating, 
heat cold uh, liquidy kind of experience coming and changing according to cause and conditions and holding the mind with that kind of attention is the is the first foundation of mindfulness mindfulness of body is body and this is a very very good exercise to do because it's it's kind of like I was trying to indicate the, the way we can pay attention I, mean, I was saying just for example I was once up in Algonquin Park and I was standing uh, on the shoreline of a of a lake where uh, the the rock edge fell fell away quite deeply into the water, and I was just looking out over the expanse of water. It was very empty. My mind wasn't doing much in a very kind of peaceful, receptive mode. And then, <clears throat> as I was standing there, a um, a loon. A fish and a loon came underwater. The loon was chasing the fish at such a speed. I was astounded. And the water was so clear I could I could make out the loon chasing this poor old fish. And it was it was very exciting. It was riveting, absolutely riveting. Uh, watching it. I've never seen that. And that's you know, when you have something like that in nature, it's it's uh, it's like a, a beautiful gift that's given to you. Now that kind of attention it's a very stimulated kind of attention, isn't it? It's fascinating, it's interesting, and, and it kind of um, echoes in my mind afterwards. Wow, what was that? That was beautiful. So there's that kind of attention we can pay uh, to our bodies or, or the sense experiences, and that's the kind we, we prefer. We prefer interesting, exciting, um, fascinating aesthetically pleasing uh, experiences through the senses. There's nothing wrong with that. This other way, so the loon is gone, the fish is gone, and I'm, I'm back into just the, the space and the, the, the sky and the big water, and my mind recedes into a kind of receptive quality, just knowing the way things are. And it's that receptive kind of quality of mind that we, we don't tend to notice because we're very much engaged with the loons running through our minds. And sometimes the loons aren't so pretty, of course, or the, or the pain in the body. And so the inattentive person or the non-reflective person that is, is just kind of going from one experience to another experience to another experience to another experience and never really noticing the silence and peace of the mind that actually underlies all of that. So the, the, the foundations of mindfulness are a way of, of quite deliberately um, engaging our attention in a way which is not dependent on excitement and is not dependent on stimulation. It's very neutral. So whatever, whatever my body is presenting uh, during a meditation or during, during the day, I can pay attention in this kind of elemental way. I can feel heat. And if you just do that, like if you sit down and just, like I've had a kind of feverish, uh, bodily sensation quite a lot the last week and just just to feel heat just like that and just know heat as heat as a changing vibrating kind of energy brings the mind to peace i also need to check my temperature and make sure i'm you know not coming down with pneumonia or something like that that's fine but just this capacity to to know life as it presents itself without any any agenda is the abandoning of craving when, when, when I'm when I'm looking at um, 
allowing the body to be just as it is and abandoning the, the desire for it to be healthy even. Not that that's a wrong desire, but in that moment I don't have that kind of tension. I don't want this bodily formation now. I want another bodily formation now. I just take this bodily formation and let it be fully conscious. I begin to experience peace. Not because the body is a, a, a kind of an exciting kind of place, but because I've witnessed it in, in a very... Um, the way of non-grasping. The more extreme the body becomes, the more difficult it is, but the lesson is the same. With pleasure in the body, uh, where it's kind of like uh, food or, or sexual imagery or whatever, that, that very draws the mind too. So it might be pain or pleasure. But now we're not, we're not you know, we're, not, we're learning how not to choose and just to know that. So if the body feels pleasure, the body feels pain, we come to the second, <coughs> the second foundation of mindfulness, which, which, which is this idea of Vedana, which is very, very central in, in Buddhist teaching around a craving, the attachment to craving. Vedana is the, uh, each, each, each moment of existence in, in Buddhist psychology has Vedana in it. And Vedana is the sense of uh, uh, attraction or repulsion uh, I think they call that in psychology the affect, so the pleasant to the unpleasant aspect of all mental or physical experience. And that affect or that pleasant or unpleasant is, is like on a scale. Some things are very, very, very pleasant, some things are very, very, very unpleasant, and some things are kind of almost neutral. So there's a kind of scale to, to, to our life which is constantly changing. And that's just that's just elemental to being a human being. And we need that. If I didn't uh, feel the pain of, of uh, the cold air, then I'd go out bare-chested and uh, catch pneumonia and die. Or if I didn't feel um, the, uh, the deliciousness of food, I wouldn't eat. It's too boring. So the, the, the sense of Edna is an elemental part of our uh, mind-body existence. And that's where we very, very much get trapped, because... When we only have uh, pleasure and pain as our standards of happiness, then there's no real way out because we are then addicted or 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 um, driven by the the need to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. But all of us know, otherwise we wouldn't be here. That that is a really that's a losing game. Not to, again, not to say that we don't use pleasure and pain to take care of ourselves and so on. But if that was an end in itself, then, then we'd, uh, it would take us to despair because all, all pleasure changes eventually to pain and discomfort. So the, the capacity then to be mindful of Vedana is a, is a huge one, I think, in Buddhist practice of mindfulness. To separate out, say, uh, like, let's say sickness, to see there is the heat in the body and then there's the displeasure of the heat, the, the unpleasantness of it and allowing that to be fully conscious, really fully conscious of displeasure is an important lesson because from Vedana we get craving, we get Tanha and from Tanha we get attachment and from attachment we get the whole sense of a self being born into suffering. So holding attention on pleasant and unpleasant is a skill that we are we're asked, encouraged to, to, to try to do. You can use pleasant. You can use pleasant to 
like in in uh, meditation practice, it's encouraged to um, develop your meditation object to the sense of it being a really pleasurable thing to do, a really like a, that your body feels quite relaxed and your mind feels happy. There's nothing, so it can be quite useful that way. You can do practices of like I find gratitude practices are very pleasant to do. They're very attractive to me, and and but that's a kind of pleasure which is not. Uh, I'm not. I'm not uh, the the victim of it, but rather it's something that's that's that arises from very wholesome, wholesome states of mind, huh? from from diligent and wholesome. That's the kind of result of wholesome practice, or or just the the um, the happiness and pleasure of say uh, generosity. So. Tansuvi Jono has just sewn 42 winter jackets, which have now been shipped all over the planet. And uh, I noticed this morning he had a, a lot of joy, a lot of joy from that good work that he did. So that's there's nothing wrong with that. But the capacity to, to see um, pleasant and unpleasant and not be drawn to it is quite a strong mind. To, to see a pleasant bodily sensation and an unpleasant and, and no one to move again but actually to learn that lesson uh, and, and f- be be at peace with the pleasant and the unpleasant forest monasteries that I trained in the there's quite a high level for me at least quite a high level of discomfort like a lot of uh, hot season in in, uh, in Wat Nanachat or what Bapong was quite is I suppose still is. It's very very unpleasant because they're in a kind of uh, ex marsh area, so it's quite heavy. Body feels very heavy, and I'm not used to to heat. Um, concrete floors, long long talks that were I couldn't understand, and so on. So there's quite a lot of unpleasantness in that in that situation for me, uh, physically physically, uh, heat in the body and. And yet it was never life-threatening or, or it wasn't inflicted on me with kind of cruelty. Everyone had to be there in the same situation. And, and just learning to witness to unpleasant bodily sensations, see the mind start to grumble and complain, and let go of the grumbling and complaining so as unpleasant as this way. This is what unpleasant feels like. It takes it to neutrality. Unless it's like really serious pain and you have to get out of it, and the body's screaming, then oh, then you move and you get out of it, and so on. But, but just just watching like, like long talks sitting on concrete without cushions and and the kind of dull aching of the body, very very boring and very very tedious kind of experience in the heat. But always be encouraged to know just body is body, and feeling is feeling. Vedana is Vedana was a very powerful training. I found a very, very powerful training. Partially because I just couldn't, you know, I either stayed there or, or, or left the monastery. I didn't want to leave. So this is it. Everyone had the same thing. And what was the practice? The four foundations of mindfulness. So discomfort is like this. And then I see my mind going off into complaining and moaning. And I, I don't want this. And then, oh, that's thought. That's just thought. Well, what's, what's, what's the direct experience of heat? What's the direct experience of discomfort? And that lesson of going to knowing body is body, Vedana is Vedana, was a 
obviously a difficult lesson because that's not what I was used to doing. I was used to going off into thinking and thinking would be conditioned by the pleasure or the pain. So if it was pleasant, I'd go that way and if it was unpleasant, I'd go that way. But actually to not take the path of just proliferating and, and be with the experience, the suchness of experience, I began to see it's possible to be peaceful within the unpleasant. And I began to see there's actually a way of training your mind to be peaceful by using the unpleasant. Not, And that's not self-mortification, but it's a kind of, what is it? It's a kind of like a challenge, right? Here's the situation. Everyone's like this. Everyone's got the same situation. What is it that I'm creating now that causing me suffering? So that taking responsibility and then training with that. That was really invaluable uh, in, in Thailand. Third foundation of mindfulness is, is the moods of the mind, jitta. And, and this is really what, how we experience life, isn't it? Well, we experience the social life, but uh, our kind of stream of consciousness that we experience, our existential life, moment by moment, is a stream of physical, uh, mental events. So like emotions are a mixture, aren't they? Like if I feel... If I feel love, I feel it in the body and in thought. If I feel hate, I feel it in the body, I feel it both. If I feel uh, inspired, it's both a, a physical feeling and a mental phenomenon. If I feel um, uh, discouraged, physical, mental. So so physical part and the, the, the mental, emotional part is called the jitta. And, and to actually know the mood of the mind before, it, before I trip off into all kinds of self-thinking, is the challenge of mindfulness. So the, if I'm feeling apprehension about, I don't feel it now, I used to a lot, apprehension about giving a Dharma talk, well that apprehension, if I wanted, wasn't aware of it as a mood, then I would take the apprehension and it would push my thinking, wouldn't it? What am I going to say? I don't know what to say. Maybe I'll say this, maybe I'll say that. But that's not really being mindful of the mood of the mind. It's simply being my thoughts being conditioned by the mood of the mind, creating a sense of self and actually perpetuating that mood in a way which is unskillful. But then at some point say, now what is the mood? What does it really, really feel like? To, what is it like to feel apprehension? That, and, and you go straight to the apprehension. And quite often it disappears or it appears again. But now there's a direct contact with it. There's a direct knowing of mood is mood, mood is mind. And that is probably more difficult to do than uh, making contact with the body. It's more difficult because our thinking mind is so quick and our moods are so real. They really are real, even though they're ephemeral. When you feel angry, you feel angry. You know, when you feel like really, really apprehensive, you feel apprehensive. And we can say, oh, they're not real. Well, they're not permanent, but they certainly feel. They certainly feel real, because we're real people. We have real, real emotions, and, and, they, and they affect us, and they're, and they're painful, and they're, and they're beautiful, and all that. So the, the capacity to be mindful in this very, very direct way. So stream of consciousness presents physical events, prevents uh, mental, emotional events. They're coming and going. They're dependent on causes and conditions, and they in turn create other causes and conditions. And the way of freedom is to find that which is uncaused and unconditioned, and that's through the awareness of change. If I can, so if I can really um, 
get in contact with some of the basic uh, moods that my personality presents, or that my life presents, or my conditioning presents, and have the um, persistence and fortitude and patience and, and wisdom to just let them be just as they are, just as they are, then that takes me to the peace of the mind. But because the moods of the mind are also, they also have Vedana in them, just as the body has Vedana, so the, the moods of the mind have Vedana in them, that Vedana then pulls us into thought and thinking. So the, the feeling of fear is natural, something wrong with it, but the desire, but the feeling of fear is very unpleasant. That unpleasantness uh, triggers off the desire for the pleasant, or to get rid of the unpleasant, triggers off a whole bunch of thinking, resistance, and struggle with fear. And fear is not liberated. It's not allowed to become conscious and go away from the mind. Whereas if there's a direct contact with, oh, fear is unpleasant, and just allow this kind of unpleasant thing just to be there, which is counterintuitive, your intuition is get rid of this thing. It's like garbage in my mind. I don't need this. But that doesn't work because fear is natural. Uh, anger is natural. Uh, love and hate are natural. And and the liberation from this uh, flow of nature is to know it as a flow, as just a stream of consciousness. That takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of work of like being being with some of the, some of the kind of habitual doubts self-doubts that we have as human beings. Now, a long retreat is different than a half-hour sitting. Like, when you have a half-hour sitting, it's pretty easy just to control things. You just control your mind by, by focusing on the breath or whatever, and it seems all very, very good. But, like, an hour sitting is more difficult. Or two-hour sitting. There's a, there's a great story of a... I think it was Ajahn Sachito gave a gave a talk in Sunderland or somewhere and uh, the, the group usually met and they had a 45 minute sitting with a 45 minute talk a usually standard Theravada monastic force monastic form so apparently I'll have to ask him to check it out but apparently Ajahn Sachito he um, he just let the sitting run so 45 minutes 50 minutes, one hour, hour and a quarter, <coughs> hour and a half, two hours. I think he, he really he really ran it a long time. And of course, the amount of aversion in the room and the amount of restlessness in the room just rose by minute, minute by minute. So everyone was okay when the agreed-upon deal was 45 sit, 45 talk. But when it went different... And all of a sudden, there wasn't the ability to control things in the way people had expected. Then all manner of aversions bubbled up, and annoyances, and 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 then all kinds of coughing to make sure that this monk stopped doing this to us, and <laughs> and and so on. So, and he was giving actually a very very powerful lesson. You're okay, you know. You can control your mind for forty five minutes, and then I entertain you for forty five minutes, but. What happens when that doesn't happen? You know, how, how really adaptable are you? How you, how strong is your mindfulness of change? And and uh, it was, a, I'm told, quite a powerful lesson. It takes a lot of courage for a monk to do that. <laughs> but um, so, like in, in the same way, uh, a long a long retreat like this, 
a, a three-month retreat. It's 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 much more difficult than just doing a ten-day retreat. Just as a a, um, a half-hour, uh, a two-hour sit is much more difficult than a half-hour sit. And it's not just the endurance of it. It's I think just the quality of being able to just control or distract now. Um, that that ability is taken away from us because we have a lot of space, and and um, we're sort of, you know, we're trying not just to spend the time in distraction, and you can't just control things all the time. So so the mind begins to relax, and some other kinds of material might come bubbling up, and this is good, which is actually good because whatever's there, if one can't be like really aware of it, then it'll all be something that will be in the back of your mind, kind of threatening you. And you always have to either distract uh, or, or, or keep it at bay. Whereas the, the really freed and liberated mind has a sense of the, the, the flow of consciousness, the flow of consciousness, everything is, is it, like Lampa says, it all belongs. Some of it's pretty, some of it's not. Some of it's pleasant, some of it's not pleasant. But the, 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 the witnessing of that flow is the skill we're trying to develop rather than controlling the flow to be always a, per, a kind of a, a format that we feel comfortable with. And because we live in a safe environment and it's moral and, and you know, we're not really hurting ourselves with self-mortification, whatever does come up is okay. It's all right. It might not be uh, pretty. but And there's a lot of strength to be gained from that. There's a lot of strength to be gained from that, as opposed to just sort of um, being sort of entertained with books or talks or, or controlling things all the time. There's a kind of uh, strength of character, I think, that arises. So that's one way to look at what we're doing. It's we're not, we're not just trying to control our minds. We're trying to develop the characteristics of a mind which, is, which experiences non-attachment, non-grasping. So the fourth foundation of mindfulness is then the Dharma. And those are the various teachings that the Buddha suggested uh, and, and and the brilliance of these structures is that in, in human experience is so varied moment by moment by moment by moment all the different bodily feelings we have and and thoughts and emotions and social interactions we have it's quite you know where do you start where do you start in that whole gamut of experience and 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 the buddha says well look at body as body look at mind as mind just see it just see emotion as emotion and then see Vedana as Vedana, and just try to get those basic elements, try to begin to really witness to them as, as changing things that arise and cease. That simplifies it. It could be, you know, it simplifies it a lot. And then within that, these Four Noble Truths. These are Four Noble Truths that, um, that if, I'm, if I'm conflicted with the way things are, if I'm suffering with the way things are, there's something about Vedana, Tanha upadana, which I have to understand. Vedana is feeling, tanha is craving, upadana is attachment. Somewhere in there, I'm not getting it right. I'm not getting it right. And I go back to that, to the second and thir- third noble truths, and I go back, okay, so, so I'm really feeling conflicted with this moment. And so what's the cause? What's the conflict? And you, you kind of just dig in. The cause should be, you know, if I... If I Understand this it's attachment to, to, to desire, to craving. And then you kind of, you look and you watch and you, you struggle and say, what, so what, what's the desire here? And you say, I don't want this state of mind, I don't want this sickness or whatever, or 
I want that experience I had yesterday, which I'm not getting today. So wanting and the, the, the ego and ignorance uh, which coalesces around wanting is, is, needs to be deciphered. You know, needs to, to like really be conscious of the conflict and just be patient and observe and say, what is it? And, and the only way you do that is by allowing this moment to be conscious. If I don't allow this moment to be conscious, and I'm trying to get some other kind of a moment, then, I, then that insight doesn't come. So it's this, this continual encouragement, reminder, wake up, what's it like now? Present moment awareness, what's it like now? Rather than trying to get rid of the conflict, or, or fig, just get kind of uh, analytical about it. Insight... Insight comes more from my experience. It comes from the, the capacity to be silent to the conflicts we have, to really allow the conflict to be conscious and to, to observe it in a silent way. Because quite often, the analyzing mind I found is just trying to get rid of stuff, and it comes from its old patterns of judgment. And, and, and actually, it doesn't really, it doesn't really look at the problem in a very direct way. It's rather like. I can I can see this recorder in front of me, and I can see that the you know there are red lights and so those lights are red. But just the experience of the recorder before I make a comment about it is like that, and there's no language necessary. So so the experience of suffering that we have and conflict and we have to let it become conscious in this way of awareness, and and just trust that awareness will. Will show us what where the grasping is, where the problem is, and oftentimes we don't trust that. We tend to trust more in the analytical mind and the thinking mind, and that oftentimes just takes us into more and more doubts. So there's a kind of courage and and willingness to allow something uncomfortable to become conscious. But it, it, you know, again, it feels kind of counterintuitive. I should I should do something about this? But the doing will take place when the insight happens. So the third noble truth, the abandonment of craving, is the insight that you begin to to understand, and that's where right effort comes from, that kind of right effort of doing techniques uh, or balancing things or whatever it comes from understanding the letting go of craving rather than from craving itself. And these are sometimes easy lessons. So like when I feel... Uh, a, a minor flu. Uh, it's a pretty easy lesson to see. Oh, you know, your your mind's going to complaining, let go. It's just the way it is. But again, if 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 um, someone tells me, you know, we're dumb, we're gonna have to take your kidneys out tomorrow, and be a more, a more complex problem. My mind get, might get quite afraid, and and start to proliferate. But still, that would be. That would be the uh, that would be the practice. So if someone tells me I've got, you know, I've got, I've got serious kidney problems. I'm gonna have to take my kidney out. I think I take one out, can't I? And, and <laughs> I can't take two. Okay, they take one out, and and just that diagnosis would would might trigger off a huge amount of fear. But that's just fear, unnatural, and I can know that. That'd be hard to do. Because my mind would just proliferate on fear, but I could. I could say, oh, fear is this way. And the more I, 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 I use the little exercises of life, the minor pains, the more when those really challenging situations come, all the way to the point of when I die, um, all of that will, will, will click in, because that's what my mind has been trained to do. It's trained to awaken to the conflicts and not attach to them. 
So the four foundations of mindfulness are are, are uh, a kind of um, non-worldly way of looking at our experience. The worldly way of looking at our experience is the way again of coming to the meetings on time and making sure that the cups are clean in the kitchen and that the hallway is swept and that we air out the meditation hall and, 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 and so on and so forth, all the duties that we have. That's the worldly way, and that's important. And then the, the transcendent way is to begin to be the witness to change and see that that witnessing of, through, through the perception of change actually is, is the gateway to the unconditioned, the peace of the mind. I've had um, delightful experiences with the with a flock of uh, with a what are we calling them a charm of goldfinches, and I had eleven on my bird feeding this morning. I was just contemplating that that like bird feeders, lakes, and aquariums. Aquariums are very peaceful too. Why is it that those natural kind of experiences can be so peaceful when we look out a across a snowscape or a big sky. And I think it's because we are attentive. We are attentive, but we're not grasping. We're attentive to life because it's it's interesting, but we're not grasping. We're not trying to get something. So I I, I would um, I would recommend try try that. Like when you go out in nature, like learn to learn to look across the fields in a way which is receptive. Let the elements just come to you. Look at it like a, like a, look at a tree, and allow the tree to come to you. And then try to figure is that a pine or is that a maple or whatever. You can do that too. But just just let the element come to you. Look at it like a Buddha image. Let it let it come to you. Uh, sound, rather than deciphering which is what sound or whatever. Just let it come to you. It's color. Look at something. Let it come to you. And then and get get a feeling for mindfulness, which is. A present, but not has no agenda, has no desire to get anything. Apply that to really neutral. I find this way of learning very helpful for myself. I apply some principle and idea to something which is quite neutral and easy to do. So that way of of experiencing life, which is receptive, rather than um, me trying to find something in that experience. If you see what I mean. So I take. I just take uh, like a simple bodily posture and then I let the bodily posture become conscious, let it present itself just as it is, which is different than me trying to find something in my body or trying to get rid of something. Just let it present itself. So if I, if I, if I understand that lesson and get the insight of that around something very neutral, then when something not so neutral happens, something quite unpleasant, uh, emotionally, physically, at least I've got I've got some insight of how to be with that. Okay, I can see I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to get rid of this, but wait, wait, wait. Why don't I just let it become conscious? And then I'm going beyond Vedana. You know, I'm going beyond Tanna. I'm just going to the, to the way it is. Um, so so I, would, I would recommend just, just try that way of, of, you're not even meditating, because sometimes meditating you just get, it kind of becomes this... Um, uh, project, what you're always doing, and you have to do this technique and that technique, and there's always a sense of becoming in it. But just to do simple things, like like to 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 just feel the cold when you when you go out the door, allow the cold to be just as it is. Uh, body is body, 
feeling is feeling, get, get to that kind of lovely uh, centeredness of knowing the way things are, and keep keep refreshing your mind in, I would recommend, keep refreshing your mind in that way of awakening, understand that, and then then that should just click in as, as uh, like if more difficult things come up. And they will. A retreat, there's, there's a lot of space here for things to come up into the mind. And it's not right or wrong, just is as it is. And challenge is, how can I keep my mind open to change rather than just be freaked out by something changing which I didn't expect? It's a kind of constant opening, and opening with goodwill to the way things are. Okay, I'll leave that for your reflection. <clears throat>